Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello. I just had a moment of laughter because I realized that I've been doing this show now for eight months in this, you know, little room of my house. Every day I sort of balance a laptop on a stool and a, put an iPad someplace else and two or three other devices kind of heaped around me. And I have to wrap my legs in a certain position to be able to accommodate all this equipment. I think of all the money that's put into the ergonomic design of radio studios these days. I realize I've been I've been living in its polar opposite now for eight months with no end of that in sight. But that is fine. I'm very excited about this show today. I'm kind of a fan of this guest for a while. If you can be a fan, might, might be the wrong word, admirer, uh, and uh, particularly of his thinking about law and public policy and specifically uh, about law and the government. Our guest today is Jack Goldsmith. Uh, he uh, is, uh, first of all, um, uh, the co-author of After Trump. We're going to tell you about that in just a second. Professor at Harvard Law School, co-founder of Lawfare, and a senior fellow uh, at the Hoover Institution. He served as head of the Office of Legal Counsel during the George W. Bush administration. He's co-authored this book with Bob Bauer, who uh, played a similar role in, in the Obama administration. And the full title of the book is After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. So Jack Goldsmith, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, you know, in a way, I think part of the premise of this book is it's kind of like if, if you run a, a Nordstrom department store and you'd like to know whether it's childproof or not, one of the things you could do is get an adolescent gorilla and give it like three Red Bulls and then just let it run around. And pretty soon you'd start to see where the potential weaknesses and problems were. And that in a way that's kind of happened here. We've had the equivalent of a gorilla on Red Bull running uh, through the presidency. And, and he, some of the problems are connected to his own temperament and misdeeds. But some of the problems, as you and your co-author suggest, are problems that were there all along. They've just never been opened up as wide as they are now. Maybe you want to comment on that as we uh, get into more specifics. Sure. That's actually a, a very good uh, analogy to what's gone on. It turns out that... Um, you know, the, the presidency wasn't childproofed. And the reason is that we've had, we didn't appreciate this, but we've had adult, fairly reasonable um, um, presidents who had a sense of shame and political decorum around, across a range of political views, of course. And so we never really tested the childproofness of the presidency, but Trump comes in and all sorts of norms and customs and expectations that were taken for granted, he defied. And uh, across a range of issues from conflicts of interest, running his business from White House to his personal benefit, not disclosing his tax reforms, the way he treated the Justice Department. We can get into those details, but all sorts of things that have been settled rules of the presidency, but not embodied in law for 50 years, Trump comes in and defies. And so he's exposed lots of weaknesses and vulnerabilities in the presidency that need fixing. So, you know, you sort of outline these kind of four areas uh, that the, the uh, four, 
I don't know, tendencies of Trump that make this an acute problem. Uh, he's indifferent uh, to some of the norms you're just talking about, the non-legal norms of pres- presidential behavior. He's merged the institution of the presidency with his own personal interest and often tries to use the presidency not to serve the American people, but to serve himself and his own interests. Uh, he's attacked other core institutions of democracy, the press, the judiciary, Congress, on and on. Uh, and he's also whipping up the crowds with his authoritarian rhetoric, uh, sometimes about things that he has no intention of following through on a serious basis. But nonetheless, those people are left with this kind of residual sense of whatever outrage or recklessness he's communicating. So the one thing that you couldn't write about because you had a deadline was what would happen if the president lost the election uh, and and took all four of those tendencies and flung them uh, at that situation. Uh, And I, I think anybody who reads this book would have a pretty good sense of what was going to happen. But as you're watching it happen, I'm going to specifically ask you. So my son and I, he's 31, and I think he likes to sort of bait me. Uh, and, And so what he said is, well, I think it just makes total sense for Trump to be doing what he's doing. And, you know, particularly when you, dad, point out that he has all these legal problems that he would he will face when he no longer has presidential immunity and probably some financial uh, roosters that are, that are going to come home to roost or chickens or whatever. Uh, you know, it makes total sense. Why wouldn't he do that? Why wouldn't he exploit every avenue to discredit or undermine the results of the election? So, I don't know, I had to channel my or Jack Goldsmith to answer those questions, but what would you say about that? I would say that you're right about everything you just said. Um, what he's done since the election has been basically to continue the playbook that he's uh, been using throughout his presidency. He hasn't violated any laws in what he's done uh, since the election day. He's attacked institutions. He's told lies. He's trying to undermine the credibility of people. He's tried to uh, the main thing he's doing is looking out for his personal interest at the expense of the country. And basically, um, the problem is, we didn't write a chapter about this. We, we, th- we talked about it, we anticipated this, but it was kind of hard to, it was kind of hard to write about when we were finishing the book. It's a very hard problem to fix. You can tighten up the rules about the transition and maybe have a lower standard for when the transition kicks in and maybe have a way to enforce the transition rules so that Trump couldn't delay the transition. But in everything else, it's his prerogative to to pursue these lawsuits. And legal mechanisms and even norm-based mechanisms cannot stop a a president from peddling conspiracy theories. So this is what happened. At the end of the day, let me say, we have a 400 and some odd page book where we have all sorts of proposals to buck up and fix the presidency. And I think that if implemented, they would be highly successful. But at the end of the day, uh, the most important factor is the person that the American people elect and what his values are. And this has just been a deeply unpatriotic reaction to the election and really just shameless. Also, I would think that one of the obstacles to some of the uh, laudable reforms that you propose in this book are connected to what's happening right now. I, I think this is probably one of these quotes that's falsely attributed to Edmund Burke, but somebody said all that is necessary for evil to prepare, prevail is for good men to do nothing. And, and, and it does seem as though in a situation where 
you know, everybody in the U.S. Senate <laughs> and Congress, they know what's happening. They know what should happening and how what's happening differs from what should be happening. Uh, and, and, you know, so many of them, mostly from Trump's own party, really seem unwilling to speak up or, or to be dragging their feet about something that should be kind of a reflexive response, you would think. I mean, isn't that also part of the problem that, you know, it, it, yes, it's the, the, the character of the person in the presidency, but it's also the degree to which he's not called out or punished for those tendencies. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think he was actually, so, but let me just say a few things to, uh, to supplement that. I agree that it was disappointing, although I have to say not surprising that members of his party in the Congress, who are, after all, politicians who basically are driven by what they think their electoral chances are and what will what will enhance those elect re-election chances, he was driven. Uh, they were driven by that to hedge. Most of them were, and they slowly but surely come around to uh, saying the right thing. But let me just question what you said about uh, good men and women, uh, you know, not stepping up. I mean, it's really a remarkable thing, and I think I think we shouldn't lose. Uh, side of this. It's a remarkable thing that the President of the United States could use every tool at his disposal mm -hmm. and every bit of coercion and rhetoric to try to change the electoral outcome and coerce people in the states mostly, including in his party, to do the wrong thing. And amazingly, the system worked and, and the system resisted that. And it's an extraordinary thing. So while I agree with you that there were uh, disappointing but not surprising reactions from some some members of his party. Uh, it's really an amazing thing that other members of his party and institutions throughout the country actually worked in the face of a really unprecedented attempt by the president to effectively steal the election. I mean, I, I agree with you about that. I made exactly that argument on the show on Monday. That, that That's the glass half full argument about this. I mean, the glass half empty argument about this is that so many of these people were people whose names we'd never heard of uh, before all this got started, you know, election official officials in Georgia. And, and you know, they've endured death threats. It, it's tendency number four as you lay them out, you know, that he whips these yep. people up. Uh, one of his lawyers, Joseph DiGenova, said that Christopher Krebs, the, the justice, former Justice Department elections official, should be taken out and shot. Um, it, it, it does seem to me that that's an area where his violation of the kinds of norms that you write about you know, has this effect of really punishing people who, who do the right thing. I completely agree. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's it's horrific, and frankly, there's not much that can be done by that. There may be legal reforms. I mean, Krebs, Chris Krebs, who you're talking about, has suggested that he might sue DeGeneva and that he might actually have an effective lawsuit. But I completely agree that the president's rhetoric uh, stirs up people, including previously responsible people. Uh, and I would include Giuliani in that crowd. I mean, Giuliani was much once a much more respectable figure to say and do horrific things, and his supporters to to harass people for their views. And it's, I, I, I don't know what to say other than it's an absolutely horrific thing. And that is the glass half empty part of it. So let's go to some of the specific things that you write about. This book, by the way, is sort of a, if you you care about all this stuff that we talk about on the show a lot, it's kind of a must have book. And I will never, ever do shows on things like pardons and special counsels and things like that again without rereading the relevant chapters in this book. But obviously, pardons are in the air uh, yep. right now. Uh, the president has already pardoned some people like Michael Flynn. He's uh, kind of trial ballooning, it seems, pardoning 
three of his offspring. <laughs> it's sort of like a pardon-based version of, of King Lear, you know, which, which ones of your <laughs> daughters will you pardon? Uh, and, and there's questions about whether he can pardon himself. Actually, before we get Jack Goldsmith to uh, comment on this, let's kind of hear uh, how this has sounded uh, in years past, m- maybe the most signal moment uh, of this kind. Uh, Cat, it's, B1, uh, it's A1, whatever that is. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, have granted, and by these presents do grant, a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon, for all offenses against the United States, which he, Richard Nixon, has committed or may have committed or taken part in during the period from July 20, 1969 through August 9, 1974. So I actually just committed the sin everybody commits. I played that one minute or so. Uh, Jack, as you know, that's a nine and a half minute speech in which Ford kind of rambles across this terrain of moral, religious, legal, and historical arguments for and against what he's doing. Uh, he tries to uh, articulate his rationale for this or lay groundwork for it on, on at least all four of those fronts. Uh, it, it is a kind of moral reflection done in public that we don't see that much anymore. Um, first of all, I guess I'm wondering what you think ultimately the legacy of that moment is. So I'm really glad you played that. It's a, it's a very famous moment in American history, obviously, when and a very important moment when Ford pardoned Nixon. One of the things I'm really glad you quoted that quote for is it, it really shows what the breadth of the pardon power is. I mean, if you were paying attention, if the listeners were paying attention to the words, Ford pardoned Nixon for every offense that he may have committed without even listing them during his entire presidency, from the time he began his presidency until the day he left. It's an extraordinarily broad power uh, under Article 2 that the president has. The Supreme Court has interpreted it very broadly. The historical significance of that moment was, uh, of course, it did great political damage to Ford because he kind of went back on his word saying that he would have more of a process. And at the time, he was highly criticized uh, for it. Over the decades, it's come to be seen as an act of statesmanship, and it's been viewed more favorably because it has become to be seen as having a healing effect on the nation, putting that the Watergate business behind us. That's still debated. My co-author and I actually debate that one point in this book. But the significance of that of, of that. Um, uh, episode is just how extraordinarily broad and powerful the pardon power is. So uh, we should say that in, in your book, the book is structured with um, some historical uh, background on uh, most of the topics that it deals with. And then usually there's sort of a separate chapter on the Trump era and how things got transmuted during that time. And then there's in great big capital letters reform and then these the proposed reforms. So I guess, first of all, we have to identify what's going wrong right now with pardons, uh, e- either in terms of the broad spectrum of history or the way that Trump seems intent on using them right now. How would we identify the problem? Well, there are there are two two sets of problems. One set of problems is that the pardon power is very broad and can be abused by presidents in ways that are entirely lawful, i.e. entirely constitutional. 
And Trump, and so for example, Trump is not the first president to pardon friends, relatives. He hasn't pardoned relatives yet, but he might well. Friends, relatives, political cronies. That's been done by presidents before. Um, we, we did an analysis of all the Trump pardons. No president has ever pardoned in self-serving ways, the way Trump has, in politically self-serving ways, to the extent he has. But one problem with the pardon power from the very beginning has been that presidents can use it to uh, to help friends, cronies, and family members. And that's been done before, and we're seeing that a lot with Trump, and we're probably going to see a lot more in the next three or four weeks. And I would put that in the in the column of abuse of the pardon power. Then there are some possible ways in which Trump might well, and might well have already, used the pardon power that are actually illegal, uh, and that actually might result in some sort of criminal process after he leaves office. The pardon power is very broad, but it doesn't mean you can do anything with it. Um, there's a, some people think in, that if the a pardon is given for a bribe, for example, that the pardon may be effective, but that the bribe as a separate crime can be prosecuted. And you may have noticed that the Justice Department is actually, uh, there was a news story a couple of days ago about the Justice mm -hmm. Department looking into an alleged bribery for pardon scheme. We don't know much about the details yet. That kind of thing, uh, and it, which may well be on the table for Trump, since uh, either as a bribe for money bribe or giving a pardon in exchange for someone keeping quiet and a proceeding against him, those type of things might give rise to criminal prohibitions later, even if the pardon's effective. The last thing to be on the lookout for during the transition is that Trump may well pardon himself. I would actually put money that he's going to pardon himself. Um, and there's never been a so-called self-pardon in American history. This would be the first time. Whether it's allowed is entirely unclear from the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't speak to it. It talks about the pardon power in broad terms. The Justice Department in one sentence, in one opinion, said without any legal analysis that it probably isn't legal. But that is entirely uh, unclear. Scholars are split on the question. And we may well see that playing out in the next few weeks as well. So, uh, so talk about reform. So, a, a lot of the book just sort of argues that a lot, some of these areas are either cloudy enough or poorly enough spelled out that they really do need uh, tuning up. Um, explain what you would do to make it more clear, because it does seem so broad as to be vague. What would you do to make it more clear what the do's and don'ts are? Are the pardon power? You mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, again, this is one of the hardest areas to reform without a constitutional amendment. Mm -hmm. For some things, you just – the pardon power is such a broad power that you can't simply through statutory fixes, um, for example, stop the president from issuing pardons after the election, which is when most of the naughty pardons take place, or to stop a president from pardoning his family members. That kind of thing isn't doable, but we think that two broad areas of, of congressional action are possible and would be a great idea. One is, is basically the two areas I just mentioned. It's just not clear now under current law, believe it or not, whether a bribe in exchange for a pardon is a crime, at least committed by the president, or whether a pardon in exchange for some kind of obstruction of justice is a crime. There are mixed views about that. It's a complicated legal question. Congress can make that clear and will uh, that would have, we think, a huge effect on uh, this type of behavior going forward, not just to prevent a president from issuing a pardon for a bribe, but to even getting close to that. It might actually have a broader impact than the law itself extends to. And the second idea, and this is uh, somewhat less certain, 
is that Congress can actually prohibit a self-pardon. Um, it's not clear whether a court would enforce that prohibition on the self-pardon. It would have to be litigated. But at a minimum, if Congress weighed in like that, it would have an impact on the court when it was assessing the validity of the pardon. So those are the two things. Those are the only two sets of reforms we have for the pardon power. It's hard. That, that's one that's hard to reform without constitutional amendment. So let me just jump ahead here and kind of open a can of worms in the process. So when the Mueller report came out, a number of things were obvious, including the fact that Mueller had defined his mission and his options in a fairly narrow way. And, and one of the things that limited him was his reliance on this kind of now infamous 1973 Justice Department memo uh, about whether it's possible to indict a sitting president for anything. Right. And, and as I look at your reforms, one of the questions that I have is if we're going if that's going to be sort of the state of the art, it's hard to create punitive measures for presidents who do things that we don't want them to do. So I, I, it's sort of a jump ahead in the conversation, but maybe but maybe something we have to deal with right off the bat. Like, what about that 1973 memo and that idea? Yeah. Yeah, so let me speak to that, and then I'll, I'll just slightly disagree with you, I think. Um, okay. So there's this 1973 memo that was reaffirmed during the Clinton administration in 1999 that said – this is the, from the office I used to head, the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department. And it said – both opinions said, and I basically agree with this, that the best reading of the Constitution is that the president cannot be uh, prosecuted, uh, indicted or prosecuted while he's in office. And uh, we, we can – let's just set aside whether that's right or wrong. That's the law governing the executive branch. So you're right. It means that a president can't be uh, subject to criminal sanctions if that rule stands, and I think it will stand. He can't be subject to criminal sanctions while he's in office. That doesn't mean – it definitely does not mean that you can't uh, regulate or impact presidential behavior while in office. And, and I think the way to see this is by looking at volume two of the Mueller report. Um, it's really a remarkable thing that Mueller lays out 10 examples of possible obstruction of justice where Trump tried to intervene in various ways in the special counsel's investigation. The remarkable thing is that Trump tried every trick in the book to get rid of Mueller, to stop Mueller, to prevent the report, the invest, stop the investigation, to fire Mueller, stop the report from coming out, and he utterly failed. And he failed because – not because uh, he had – was checked. But the people directly under him, his closest political associates, wouldn't carry out the orders. And it's really a remarkable thing that Don McGahn and people in the Justice Department and his close friends, Papadopoulos, wouldn't do the president's bidding. Why wouldn't they do the president's bidding? We don't know for sure, but they were probably worried themselves about obstructing justice. They were worried about the norms of independence that have prevailed since the 70s that had much more bite in the Trump era than we realized just below the surface. And so by criminalizing more directly the president's pardon power, you have – even if a president – and I, I think it has an impact even on the president during the presidency. But even if you have a crass president by, like Trump who's kind of indifferent to these things, it has a big impact on the people just below him. And ultimately what you're trying to stop is the bad behavior. You can't prevent a president necessarily from doing something, but you can keep him from successful from succeeding in what he wants to do. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Uh, I, I'd 
push back against it a little bit, but I, I also don't want to waste valuable time with Jack Goldsmith. So what we're going to do instead is, uh, uh, per the orders of our producer, Betsy Kaplan, we will take a break. We will come back. There's so much more to talk about, uh, about this terrific book after Trump reconstructing the presidency. I got upset I lost my All right. We're back. We're talking uh, to Jack Goldsmith, um, co-author of After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency, uh, uh, a new book uh, that he has co-authored with Bob Bauer. Uh, Both Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith served in the senior executive branch positions in the administrations of Barack Obama and George W. Bush. So and one thing I can say about this book is don't think that after you've listened to the show, you don't need to go read the book because we're going to cover like, I don't know. 8% 8% or something. I'm already frustrated by the things we're not going to cover. Um, so I feel I would be remiss because, in fact, you do have an awful lot of stuff in here, a whole section about special counsels. And we do have like another piece of news today. In fact, Jack, I live in Connecticut and I've really been thinking about like whether I could think of a really good federal crime that I could commit right now because our U.S. Attorney John Durham has been working for a really long time on this investigation of the origins uh, of the uh, of the Russia probe and now it turns out that backdated quite a few weeks, October 19th, I think, he at some point became a special counsel uh, per the orders of uh, Bill Barr uh, looking into this. And and I've been trying to figure this out a little bit. And your book is very helpful. I assume this is like the kind of Patrick Fitzgerald special counsel that you talk about. Uh, it's on page one seventy two of your book. If you want, if you want to know, but like, what's going on here? What what, what, is, what is happening? So yeah, but it's actually well. There's a lot to say here. Barr actually modeled the appointment of the Durham special counsel on the Mueller. Special counsel. It actually has the same legal basis as the Mueller uh, special counsel. But let me try to explain what's going on here. So Barr has obviously, from the day he entered the office of the Attorney General, has been um, he's been very suspicious of elements of the of the Russia the investigation by the FBI of the Trump campaign and later of the Trump presidency. And I can't remember when. About 18 months ago, he appointed John Durham, your U.S. Attorney. Who is a very credible guy who uh, has a stellar reputation as someone who has bipartisan support in Washington anyway. He was uh, appointed by Eric Holder, the Obama attorney general, to do a special counsel type investigation. Barr appoints Durham to investigate the basically the investigators. And this investigation has been going on for, I think, 18 months, almost two years. But it hasn't been a special counsel. It didn't even start off as a criminal investigation. It turned into one. Durham has, except for one instance, kept completely quiet, and that's his M.O. Usually he he's, has a reputation for doing extremely long and thorough investigations. He took issue with something in an inspector general report once, but other than that, he's kept quiet. But what's really going on here is that by ma- naming him a special counsel, Barr has ensured that the Durham investigation will continue into the next administration. And it's going to put the next administration in a very tricky spot because this appointment is very much almost directly analogous to the Mueller appointment. 
And so basically it's going to put the next attorney general in the position of saying, do I allow this investigation to, to, to continue or do I do the very thing that everyone in my party said couldn't be done uh, during the Mueller investigation, namely stop the special counsel and fire him? So it's kind of a devious move by Barr, in my opinion. Yeah. Or a devilishly I mean, clever move. <laughs> well, and also your devil, devilishly clever uh, friend and colleague, Benjamin Wittes, has written on this and has suggested that there are ways of ending uh, this thing that if Biden gets in there and he thinks, well, this is nuts, particularly if Durham is going to investigate Mueller, which it looks like he has the, the power to do, uh, this is getting to be a, a, a worm swallowing its own tail. This has got to stop. It's not good for us. Do you think that there are any remedies? I don't know whether you read Wittes' stuff. Yeah, like yeah I, I, I didn't read it, but I talked to him about it before he wrote it. I know what he thinks. Um, so they're all, it, it, it's easy to stop the Durham investigation. The next attorney general can, if he wanted, under the stat, under the regulations, he can stop the attorney general. The question is, uh, how will that play politically? Because it would basically be doing. I mean, Barr has set up, put, put Durham in the position that Mueller was in, and given him an authority to carry out an investigation. And it basically, it's going to mean that the next attorney general is going to be in the position of doing, or the next president is going to be in the position of doing, which everyone said that Trump couldn't do, namely firing a special counsel. And so it can definitely be done. I think what Ben suggested, I, again, I didn't read that piece, but I talked to him about it, um, is that the next attorney general wait and see what, what, what Durham has. I mean, Durham, we have to assume, is a person of integrity, and I, I do think he is. What his investigation is about, where where it stands, who he's investigating, I don't think any judgment can be made until you know that. But then the next attorney general is going to have a very difficult question, and it's kind of a political slash legal question. There's no doubt about the authority to stop the investigation. The question is, how will it play? All right, um, I could talk about this a lot more, but I think we need to keep going here and speed date through a few of these things. All right, so uh, I was uh, in my car a, a month or so ago, and I was listening to the fine public radio program, um, Radio Lab, and they were doing an episode that was called Nukes, and it was basically about the authority of the president to 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 launch a nuclear strike. Uh, I'm just gonna yep. play a little clip. This is a B one cat. Let's play a little clip uh, for Jack. This is Bill Perry, formerly Secretary of Defense, 19th Secretary of Defense of the United States. So we decided to ask an actual Secretary of Defense. William Perry served under President Clinton uh, from 1994 to 1997. Yeah. Let's just pretend for a moment that the president issues you an order that you disagree with because you don't think the president is of right mind or sober or whatever. What authority do you have as Secretary of Defense, if any, well, the system is set up so that only the president has the authority to order a nuclear war. Nobody has the right to countermand that decision. He might choose to call the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to get his advice or his counsel. But he may, even if he does that, he may, he may or may not accept that counsel. If you, as Secretary of Defense, say to the president, he says, let's go, and you say, let's not. Can First you... of all, if he calls me. Yeah. And then if I say that, Mr. President, that would be a very serious mistake. Don't do that. He might or might not accept my advice. Are you necessary to launch? Like, no. No. Suppose everybody in the room thought that it was a bad idea. Would he still be able to do it? Yes. 
he has the, the call directly to the Strategic Air Command to do the launching, and they will respond to his orders. They don't call the Secretary of Defense or the Chairman and say, should I do this? They do it. I have to say, Jack, this was one scary freaking 50 minutes of radio. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. but it's also uh, dealt with uh, cogently in your book. What, what do you want to say about this? Well, uh, that was a great clip. And it's a very scary thing that the president of the United States has the authority that Perry described. Basically, the pre- we've vested the entire authority and discretion in one person whether to launch a nuclear war. And there are good reasons why we did that. It has to do with both Article 2 and the Commander-in-Chief Clause and our deterrence policy, and we need to have quick decisions. But in Trump's hand, of course, given that he was kind of casually threatening to use these powers in non-obviously needed situations, and given how mercurial he is, how disrespectful of expertise he is, how indifferent to the fact he is, there was a very serious concern that he was just going to order the use of nuclear weapons. Now, there's Perry described the chain of command correctly. There are ways to put sand in, in, in the system. I mean, you don't have to, the person can resign rather than carry out the president's order. It's a very dangerous situation. We have some proposals in the book to basically try to enhance in obvious situations where the president has gone mad or is doing something obviously on its face irrational to enhance the people's people in the chain of command's power to slow down the slow down the process to say no but even that type of reform is dangerous to your deterrence policy so it's again we have a series of reforms designed to deal with the worst case scenarios but it's maybe the scariest power that the president has and it's among the least regulated I mean, in a way, this sort of also touches on your discussion of the relationship of the president to Congress, particularly in matters of war. Although part of the problem here, it seems to me, is that the executive branch is kind of a fast twitch muscle. You know, it can do something (laughs) almost in a matter of minutes, as you just heard in that in that clip. You know, the Congress is kind of a medium twitch muscle and the judiciary is a slow twitch muscle. And in a way, trying to get Congress to in some way uh, create checks on, on the president in matters of war is asking a, a turtle to put checks on a rabbit, right? I mean, the rabbit just moves a lot faster. Well, not necessarily. Yes, I agree with your general description. But Congress has the power to slow the president down in, non, in non-emergency situations. And I don't think Congress can or should stop the president from having the power to launch nuclear weapons in response to an incoming nuclear attack. And that was the Cold War scenario on which all of our deterrence was built, or at least originally built. But if it's if the president is using nuclear weapons in a non-emergency situation that's not a vital threat to the interests of the United States, that there there can be legal constraints that slows that process down, that requires consultation, that empowers bureaucrats to at least ask legal questions. So what we try to do in that chapter and what we think is important in thinking about this problem is to distinguish, try to legally distinguish genuine emergency situations from ones that are genuinely not emergency situations where deliberation and consultation is possible. Now, I'm not I'm not completely optimistic that this is doable because I'm not sure that any president, including Biden, will go along with it. But it is theoretically doable, and there's no reason a president of the United States should have the authority to unilaterally use nuclear weapons in a non-emergency situation. It's just there's no reason for it. 
All right, so uh, we're going to take, take another break here. This show is going way too fast, and there's like a lot of topics I'm having to cast aside here. Uh, we're talking to Jack Goldsmith. He is co-author with Bob Bauer of After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. We will be back uh, with our final segment, and then we'll just bargain for another hour or something. When you're sitting there And you have to do your thinking In a rocking chair when some exercise would keep you feeling well but a journey to the golf course and the country's gone to Okay, so we're back. I have to very quickly thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio making it possible for me to sit here in my jury-rigged apparatus uh, and uh, do radio shows month after month. Uh, and I'm very grateful uh, for that. And I'm also very grateful to have Betsy Kaplan as my senior producer. She is the producer of this uh, episode as well. Uh, I'm not supposed to tell you what we're doing tomorrow, so I won't tell you what we're doing tomorrow. Uh, we're talking right now, though, to Jack Goldsmith, a professor at Harvard Law School, co-founder of Lawfare, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and a co-author with Bob Bauer of After Trump Reconstructing the Presidency. All right, let's do some easy ones that we can do kind of fast. Uh, maybe there are no easy ones. Okay. But let's, uh, I'm going to play you another clip. Uh, this is, uh, in fact, uh, the person whose name appears in the title of your book explaining how he's going to handle a certain thing. My two sons, who are right here, Don and Eric, are going to be running the company they are going to be running it in a very professional manner. They're not going to discuss it with me. Again, I don't have to do this. They're not going to discuss it with me. And with that, I'm going to bring up Sherry Dillon. And she's going to go, these papers are just some of the many documents that I've signed, turning over complete and total control to my sons. I should say he's gesticulating to like nine high stacks <laughs> of papers, which I think we know most of them are probably blank or they're like Barron's old term papers or something. But uh, but yeah, Jack, this is one of the areas that you talk about. This might be one that we could close the loophole pretty quickly, but but talk about it. Yes, I agree that that this is this should be a low hanging fruit in reform. So everything Trump Trump was right when he said he didn't have to do what he did because the president is not expressly governed by the conflict of interest laws, which is a big problem that we try to address in the book. He wasn't telling the truth about the other stuff, though. He didn't put his businesses beyond his purview. He's been up. He's been keeping up to date on what his businesses have been doing. And of course, he's been in a pretty grotesque way mixing his public duties with what's best for his private businesses. He's been doing a lot of businesses on his properties. He's been profiting off of, of uh, public office in that way. Basically, this is these are norm. These are have been done. These have been governed by norms. These problems, and we basically think they should be governed by law. The main reform would be to uh, make it a criminal a prohibition on the president having any involvement in any of his businesses, direct or indirect, and have that enforceable with a criminal prohibition. Um, which you might think can't be enforced against the president while he's in office, but it would have a big impact, especially on the people around him who would be engaged in, in conspiracy if they didn't comply with the law. We also we basically argue also for complete transparency about these arrangements. We don't like the idea of a blind trust because it's too easy to circumvent. We argue for transparency and for, but not divestiture, and also for, but we do have stronger rules for when the president benefits from foreign investments, 
Long story short, though, this is an area that can and should be reformed. Trump should not, the president should not be able to profit off of public office, and he shouldn't have mixed motives in carrying out public duties. And I assume we can kind of staple onto that the whole idea of tax returns and and insistences yeah. that that audits make it impossible to disclose. Yeah, that's tax related. Returns. We have yeah. yes, I agree that that's, we have a separate chapter on that, but it's all part of the kind of personal corruption, business corruption, and that's even easier to achieve. Uh, I mean, there are some technical things that have to be complied with that we would discuss. But basically, that's been a norm that's been followed by presidents and presidential candidates for 50 years and should be easy to embody in law. And there should be bipartisan support for that. That's something that the Republicans have long, you know, gone along with during the presidency. We'll see how much of a hold Trump has on the 10 or 12 Republicans it would take to pass that law after he's gone from office. Right. I mean, it isn't it's sort of the paradox, I think, is that Trump is always the best argument or often the best argument for these kinds of reforms. I mean, in the case of the tax returns, you know, when the New York Times did get a hold of this stuff and they're and, you know, we're reading it and going four hundred twenty million dollars. You owe somebody four hundred twenty million dollars. Yeah. Three hundred million dollars of this is coming due fairly soon and it's personally guaranteed by you. Who do you owe this money to? I mean, it, right. it's a compelling public interest to know the answers to those questions. Yes. The problem is that if you make it about Trump, you know, Ron Johnson is going to vote for some new law if that's the reason it's going to exist. Yes, that's the paradox on this and a couple of other reforms. Now, invariably, it's going to be about Trump because he's the one that broke the norms. But hopefully the sting can be taken out of that if since the president who's actually going to be subject to it is a Democrat. And also because I mean, this like, something like tax disclosure and conflict of interest and not being beholden to your business is such at the core of good governance and has been such an accepted norm in, even in Washington, of all places, for so long that one hopes, although I say hopes and not that I'm optimistic, that there are at least enough Republicans to overcome a filibuster on that issue. Um, I know that there are half a dozen at least and maybe more, and who knows? I think one of the big questions about what happens on January 21st is what kind of grip Trump has in contexts like these over his party. I think that there's a range of views on that, and we just don't know yet. Okay, last uh, area has to do with uh, a pretty touchy subject, and that is if, in fact, uh, the Biden administration believes that serious offenses, civil and criminal, were committed during the Trump presidency, should they do anything about it? Should Congress do anything about it? Should there be uh, some kind of public reckoning that doesn't involve like Cyrus Vance or somebody like that it actually involves the federal government looking at the highest ranking federal employee? Yeah, this is a tough one. Uh, I take the position in the book that the Biden administration should go very, very slowly because the consequences of doing this are enormous. I should add that the consequences of not doing it are also large, and my co-author takes the opposite position in the book. But in my view, um, it's not obvious, despite all of his malfeasance, what crimes he's committed. And the crimes that he might have committed, like obstruction of justice, are for a whole bunch of technical legal reasons hard to prosecute. And so you face the possibility that of investigating Trump, and not just Trump, but many people in his administration for acts in office, which, me, which would be a first in American history and would set a terrible precedent for future administrations looking back. And that one that might not, I think almost certainly wouldn't result in successful prosec uh, prosecution or indict, uh, um, conviction. And so it would fail. 
and along the way you would it would be a circus that would take away from everything else the Biden administration wanted to do and it would keep Trump in the spotlight and in many circles elevate him. So it's going to be a very tough call for the next president. Biden has signaled that he doesn't want to go there, but he's also signaled that he's going to let his attorney general decide. And I think it's one of the hardest decisions that the next administration is going to have in the first few months. Right. I mean, I, I do think, first of all, I mean, people's just the, among the citizenry, people's tempers are are, you know, at a boiling pit point on both sides. I, I describe yeah, myself exactly. on, on the air as being kind of of two minds about it, but beginning to kind of track in more of a goldsmith situation. I may have even invoked your name. And this woman wrote to tell me, told me she would never listen to my radio. So again, because <laughs> I wasn't th- fully in favor uh, of some kind of public trials. But I mean, on the other hand, Trump supporters are going to go nuts. Uh, yeah. not, not that we should make decisions of this type based on kind of polling or our sense of public reactions, but you can't completely discount that either. I agree. And let me just say two things there if we have time. One is you can't discount that. I mean, one element of prosecutorial discretion is what is best for the community. Now, it's very hard to figure out what's best for the community. There are arguments on both sides, but that is a legitimate element in figuring out whether to go forward. And the second thing is, you know, you mentioned Congress. There are other forms of accountability here, and I think that's important. First of all, there's the state prosecution, which I think is going to be very robust, of the Trump organization, which would sweep him in and which is not subject to a pardon power. And there's also Congress. (laughs) Don't forget Congress. And I think Congress can and should do a thorough investigation under the guise of the reform program that we've laid out, which they're already interested in. There's going to be a reform agenda in Congress. Under that guise, we can learn a lot about what happened in the Trump administration. And then publicity and criticism are important forms of accountability. Um, so there won't – it's not a question of no accountability or criminal accountability. There are other forms of accountability that will serve as substitutes. All right. So I've actually left about uh, three or four minutes here, and, and I did it uh, with two possible ideas. But I'll, let's pick this one. I want to you pick one of your babies from this book uh, that I haven't brought up so far, uh, a problem that you think can be reformed and uh, and use your time that way. So let, let me see a uh, problem that can be reformed. Very easy. This is one's not obvious, but. There were all sorts of problems in the FBI and the Justice Department, both in the investigation of Hillary Clinton during the email uh, problem and in the investigation of the Trump campaign and presidency as documented in the Inspector General report. There are some very easy fixes to clarify responsibility for who makes those very difficult decisions. It should be the attorney general and what the criteria should be for when you open these investigations. And also the related norms about you know, Jim Comey, uh, uh, when he uh, when he announced his decision about Hillary Clinton and then when he reopened the investigation right before the 2016 election, those were both things that kind of skirted norms, but the norms were not as clear as they could be, and those should be clarified, and that should not be allowed to happen. Those are some kind of maybe non-sexy reforms, but I think they'd have a huge impact in the future. All right. Uh, we actually have a little bit more time. This is the question I really wanted to ask. Do you wake up in the middle of the night thinking, well, what's really going to happen is the entire Washington establishment, Washington establishment is going to say, okay, but we've got a grown up here now. Biden's a grown up. This stuff is not going to be happening anymore. Uh, You know, I mean, we don't have to do this stuff. You know, Biden's going to give us his tax returns. Biden's not going to try to run a business out of the White House. Biden's not going to do any of this stuff uh, that will go back to a kind of complacency. There's definitely a danger of that. And there are many 
for many people, many more important things on the agenda. Biden's going to have a very full agenda. Uh, but I will say, so that's a, that's a serious possibility. I think the more likely possibility is we'll get a drip and drab of half measures and maybe some serious reforms in some corners of this. But the problem is, is that the time to make these reforms is during a presidency that cares about the, the issues. And Biden is not going to violate these norms, but uh, for the most part, I'm sure. But it's very important that this is the time to fix them because you can't fix them during a Trump-like presidency. You can only fix them in a presidency that cares about these values and wants to preserve them. Whether it will happen is going to depend on uh, a whole bunch of factors about everything else that's going on. There's unfortunately not a lot of uh, political benefit in carrying reforms like this out. So they're hard to do, but there is a huge interest for it, at least in the House of Representatives and among many people in the Democrat side, excuse me, in, in the Senate. And Joe Biden has said that he's a constitutional president and he wants to return uh, to, um, to, to adherence to constitutional norms. So we'll see. But I don't know. All right. We're going to stop there. Uh, the book is After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. I'll just quickly say that in answer to my first question, the thing that my son was bringing up, like, why shouldn't Trump do this stuff uh, if it advances his interests? The phrase that I came back to is the Jack Goldsmith phrase, because the presidency is a public trust. It's not something there for you to use any way you want to. It's a pl- but, public uh, trust. It go ahead. Yeah. That's a good answer, but that, which I agree with, obviously. But unfortunately, Trump doesn't see it that way. No, no, unfortunately not. But we got to restore that idea. That might be the most important thing to come out of all this. But the book is terrific by Bob Bauer, Jack Goldsmith, after Trump, reconstructing the presidency. Uh, thanks for listening. What a great uh, conversation. I really had a lot of fun, Jack. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for your great questions and for reading the book. Appreciate it.